0: for the preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, I pray now that as we open up uh, these words that you have written down for our instruction and our hope that we would be pointed not simply to true things, but we would be pointed to our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his marvelous love in the gospel. Pray this in his name, amen. Please take a seat. Turn to Mark chapter 9. I want to start by asking our kids and our students. When I was in school, they, the, the teachers at the time... We're, we're really into this wacky idea, and I don't know if they still are. It's called learning styles. Do they still talk about learning styles? They would, that, and that, that meant that the teacher would teach something the normal way, which was to tell you the lesson, and then they would teach it again by showing it to you for the people who learn better through pictures, and then they'd teach it again with activities for the people who were better. So you'd learn the lesson 26 times so that everybody learned it the way that they were used to learning. And I thought that was silly until I realized that my learning style is definitely song. Right? If you want to remember something, you learn it through song. I can't remember most of my history class, but I know that at Waterloo, Napoleon did surrender. (laughs) Now, I might think this idea is silly, but if you look in Scripture, when God has something really important to teach his people, he doesn't just say it, he shows it. He teaches them by giving them things that they can see and they can touch. The temple, sacrifices, circumcision, those were all gifts that God gave his people so that they could learn the things that he had spoken to them, the words that he had told them. And there's a few big moments in history where God even goes so far as to show his people himself. When he is teaching them something, incredibly profound about himself, he manifests himself so that they can see that and learn that. Think about the glimpse of his glory that Israel got on Mount Sinai, the fiery cloud from which God gave his law. Think of when Elijah was hopeless. He thought God's people were doomed, and God took him out into the wilderness and gave him a glimpse of his glory to remind Elijah, I am still keeping my promises. Now last week, we heard Jesus teach a really big lesson. Jesus taught his apostles the big lesson. If I am the Messiah, the anointed king who has come to save, that means Jesus says that I am going to die to save my people and rise again. And we saw how big a lesson this was in the apostles' response. They loved that Jesus was the Messiah, they weren't quite ready to get on board with that meaning that he was going to the cross. And Jesus then explained why so many people find that a hard lesson to learn, why they don't love Christ's cross, because if Jesus is the kind of Messiah that goes to suffer and be hated and rejected and die, then he's not the Messiah who has come to offer us a really cushy, wealthy lifestyle here. In fact, He's the Messiah who tells us to follow Him by taking up our own cross, denying ourselves. That means suffering. But Jesus reminds His disciples right at the end of that big lesson, that doesn't mean that the kingdom isn't coming in its big, beautiful glory. It is coming. And He says in Mark 9, 1, "...truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power." That is a big lesson. That was a lot to take in, a lot to learn. So about a week after that lesson, Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter and James and John, up a mountain where he shows them what he's been telling them. And they get this amazing miracle. And notice in the miracle we're about to read, this isn't one of those miracles where Jesus does something to someone. This is a miracle where Jesus himself is changed and shows us something about himself through that. So for those apostles, now for us, God wants us to look, to see, and to think about what we are being shown and ask, how do these things that we are shown help us to understand those things which we have been told? So let's read Mark 9. We're going to read verses 2 through 13. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, "'This is my beloved Son. Listen to him.' And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising to the dead might mean. And they asked him, "'Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come?' And he said to them, "'Elijah does come first, to restore all things.' And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is God's word. So we we call this event the transfiguration. For just a moment, this glimpse is opened up for these three disciples. And they get to see a hint of that kingdom that Jesus had just promised That they would see. They see this even in Jesus' own appearance. Transfiguration is just a big word for changing one's figure, changing appearance. I think it's actually pretty unhelpful that so many of our Sunday school drawings show Jesus with that bright white Roman toga, that comes with the baby blue sash, because we miss what a dramatic change it would have been in the transfiguration when his clothes become intensely white, whiter than anyone could bleach them. Uh, Matthew adds that Jesus' face shone like the sun. Think of the change that that would be if Christ is uh, walking around in a poor, dirty tunic, as many people wore in his day the only Jesus that the apostles had known was Jesus in his humility. That's how they were used to seeing him. Poor, as Isaiah says, nothing special to attract the eye about Jesus. Despised and rejected. And yet, in his humble human ministry, Jesus is God. God the Son in flesh. Taken on human flesh. Paul tells the Philippians, you have to stop and think about the incredible humility of Jesus when we know who he was as he walked around in poverty in his body. Paul says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What the transfiguration does is for just a moment, it peels back that curtain of humility that Jesus has taken on and reminds the disciples that is who he actually is. It gives a hint of that glory that is still his even as he is living this poor, humble life. But it also reminds them that one day they are going to see that glory in the future. Brother Roger read for us Daniel's prophecy about the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. Jesus applies that title to himself in this passage all throughout the Gospels to talk about who he is as the Messiah. And Daniel uses that title to show us, to remind us of who the Messiah will be in his conquering when he comes into dominion and glory and power over the nations. Even though the apostles can only see Jesus as this suffering servant, he is, even then, the conquering king. And that's our first point this morning. The transfiguration shows that Jesus is the conquering son of man. The transfiguration reminds the disciples why it is so good that Jesus is not the kind of conquering king that they might have been hoping for. Why he's not just the next Caesar or Alexander the Great. Paul continues to explain to the Philippians that it is because Jesus was the king who humbled himself. Because he was the king who took the form of a servant. Because he was humble even unto death on a cross. Therefore, says Paul... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is what Peter and James and John are invited to get just this glimpse of up on the mountain that the cross was going to lead to this glory, to this crown. This is why Jesus tells them to keep it a secret until after the resurrection. Because if Jesus had shown this sight to the world now, no one would have wanted the cross. They would have thought, this is it, this is the glorious kingdom come about, Christ has come to conquer, and they would have rejected the cross, which would have been the very means by which they could have been invited into Jesus' kingdom. So the disciples are going to wait. They're going to wait until after his death and resurrection so that they can paint that whole picture like Paul does to the Philippians. It is because he was this humble, suffering servant that he is surely bringing in this glorious, shining kingdom. That is the invitation to us as well. To embrace Christ, the suffering servant, and in knowing him in his humility, to also know him in the glory of his future kingdom. Moses and Elijah come, and they play a part in showing that kingdom as well. What that future kingdom will be like, it's going to include all the people going back through the whole history of God's people, a kingdom where all of God's heroes will be there, all of the saints from the Old and New Testament, and everyone through history gathered around, and at the center, there will be Jesus, and they will all be giving glory to him. But why did God choose these particular Old Testament heroes? Why didn't he choose David, who got those messianic promises? Daniel, who had the vision that points towards what we're seeing here, or Abraham? What do Moses and Elijah represent when you put them together? God has brought back these two men who each had wonderful visions of the glory of God, he brings them back to witness another one, to say, here is the climactic moment that all of those great visions, all those wonderful things you experienced were building towards, were pointing towards. Here he is, Jesus, in his divine glory. This is the climax of all of that past history. And that's all the more clear when we think about what Moses and Elijah's jobs were, what ministry had God given them. Moses gave the people the law. Elijah was the most powerful of the prophets. To use a big word, Elijah was the prototypical prophet. He was the prophet that could stand in to represent all the prophets based on the power and spirit of his ministry. So when you put Moses and Elijah together, they're standing there to represent their different ministries. Beside Jesus is standing the law and the prophets. And what did God's people mean when they talked about the law and the prophets in Jesus' day? The scriptures. Yeah, they were talking about the scriptures. So standing next to Jesus are not just two representatives of the history of God's people, but the representatives of God's scripture. And they have come to point to Jesus in his glory. To say, this has all been building up to now. So that's our second point, that Jesus is the long-awaited hope of God's people, the climax of their history, the purpose for their scriptures. It's always Jesus. Remember, we we heard last week that lots of rumors were going around about who Jesus was. Maybe he was another Elijah. Maybe he'd be a, a new kind of Moses or Joshua or Samuel. But Jesus is showing that he is more than that. He is the one that they all bow down to. The law, the prophets, the kings, the battles, that is all unfolding a history that is all about Jesus. So kids, when you open your Bible, moms and dads, when you open your Bible, you're not just picking out different stories to teach you different lessons. You are always asking, how does this point me to Jesus? How does this show me how wonderful the good news of Jesus is? Moses and Elijah are here at the transfiguration to tell us that that is what we are to do, that this is all about the gospel. The response of the disciples to this scene is confusion and terror, And this also makes us think back to those great moments in Scripture where God revealed his glory, right? To Elijah when he sees God in the temple, to God's people when Sinai uh, shows the glory of God and he gives the law. Now in his discombobulation, Peter suggests building some tents. And we don't want to spend too much time thinking about what Peter is what Peter's thinking by this, because we hear he's saying it because he's terrified and doesn't know what's going on. But we couldn't blame him if what he wanted was for these guys to stick around. Let's build some tents. Let's keep this going. Elijah and Moses are here with Jesus. Let's keep this. Let's, let's, let's make this last a long time. Maybe even go on forever. Maybe this will be the beginning of the glorious manifestation of God's kingdom we've been hoping for. Maybe this is it. This is actually the opening up of the end game of God. But it was just a glimpse. A cloud comes and overshadows this scene and a voice speaks out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. What is God showing about Jesus here? Now, the cloud, again, reminds us of God's glorious presence all through the history of his people. That's the presence of God that filled the temple, that was on top of the mountain, and here it is, and God uh, God speaks, this is my beloved son. Now, that might remind you of another important moment in Jesus' ministry. This is the second time that God has come himself to say that, way back in chapter one of Mark, when John baptized Jesus. The heavens opened, the spirit descended, and God said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. That event was like an announcement to begin Jesus' ministry. God is affirming, here he is, my son, the anointed son of David, the Messiah come to save his people. So the fact that we're getting a similar sign here shows us that we have come to another pivotal moment in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus has just taught his disciples what it means that he is the Messiah, means he's gonna go suffer and die on the cross and rise again. In a way, Jesus' ministry is starting to turn towards its goal, to look towards the cross. And just like he did at the beginning of his ministry, God is affirming that everything Jesus is doing, what he has done, what he's about to do, all of that is God's perfect plan. It's our third point. Jesus is faithful to his Father's plan. Mark has shown us and will show us the disciples wrestling, trying to figure out and understand what it could mean that the Messiah has to go and suffer and die and rise again. And God, in a sense, is speaking into that confusion. He's responding even to Peter's rejection in the previous passage where Peter says, no way you're going to die. God speaks from the heavens and says, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Listen to what he says he has come to do and trust him. That is the plan. That is God's plan. The plan that God has had since the days of Elijah who is here. The days of Moses who are here. Luke even tells us that they came and were talking about Jesus going to Jerusalem. They are here to say, yes, the death and resurrection of Jesus is not plan B or C. It is God's perfect plan for history that his son would die and rise again. That amazing moment, this moment, the transfiguration on on the mountain, it brings together the past of God's people. It brings together the future in this glimpse of the kingdom. And it points all of it at Jesus on his way to the cross. The Father is showing these apostles the death and resurrection of Jesus Everything before that, that's what it was leading to. The death and resurrection of Jesus, everything after that, that's what has come from that moment. Here is the climax of history. And the only rival will be that final moment where this glory extends everywhere and everything that the cross has meant comes about fully. When this transfiguration, when this glorious sight disappears and the apostles are left alone, Jesus is still there. But none of those things that the transfiguration declares have gone away. They can't see them, but the lesson is still true. Here is Jesus, the hope of the law and the prophets. Here he is, the temple glorious presence of God with them. Here he is, divine glorious God in human flesh. All of it is still true of Jesus. And even as we do not see his human flesh, all of it is still true of him today. The conversation as they go down the mountain shows that the disciples are still struggling to understand what has happened. When Jesus says, don't share this until after the resurrection of the Son of Man, they ask each other what it means. And then come up with the question, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now the commentaries tell us that at this time there was lots of discussion and debate about the prophecies that Elijah would precede the coming of the Messiah on the day of the Lord, and that that day might be a day of general resurrection of God's people. This discussion and debate was largely based on Malachi chapter four, where Malachi says, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, Peter and James and John have have just seen Elijah They have just seen Elijah standing next to Jesus. So it does make sense that they wonder, based upon these prophecies, is this the appearance of Elijah that is to come before the glorious day of the Lord? Is everybody about to see what we just saw? Is this it? Is this reigning time? Is this conquering time? But Jesus corrects them. The coming of Elijah was not what many people had expected it to be. Just like Jesus the Messiah was not who many people had expected him to be. Elijah had come, Jesus said. He'd come before the Messiah. But it wasn't a glorious revelation of worldly splendor. It was a humble ministry. He was hated by men and suffered. Luke makes it clear that the disciples understood from what Jesus said that he was talking about John the Baptist, who came in the spirit and the power of Elijah before Jesus. John's ministry was very much like Elijah's. Perhaps they should have seen that more clearly. Driven out into the wilderness, hated and opposed by God's people, proclaiming repentance. The apostles, they haven't learned this yet. They're still coming to understand not just the kind of prophet that John was, but the kind of Messiah that Jesus was after him the kind of Messiah that John was pointing to. John's own ministry of suffering and rejection set the stage for what the ministry of Jesus would be like. Jesus says the Son of Man would suffer many things and be treated with contempt. The disciples are struggling to puzzle that out. That the glorious Son of Man would come to be hated and rejected. That His kingdom could come about through death that his kingdom could grow through the suffering of his followers, dying themselves, carrying out a cross after him. They struggle to connect that kind of kingdom with this glorious revelation that they've just seen. Now, of course, the disciples are not alone in finding this a hard lesson to learn. The suffering and rejection of all this world's treasures that comes with the life of a citizen of Jesus' kingdom is a hard lesson for all of us, isn't it? Like Peter, when he couldn't accept that Jesus would go to suffer and die, there are things about Jesus that we love immediately, that we want to cling to. Jesus the king, great. Jesus our gracious friend. Jesus who welcomes all to come to him, great. I'm with you. But then when we fully see who he is, What he came for, what it means to follow him. Jesus who calls us to suffering and shame, to rejection of the world, to battle against sin. That might be too much. Either we reject Christ entirely or we try and get rid of those things. Can I change who Jesus is? Can I pick and choose the type of Messiah that he will be? Take the parts I like and run from the things about Jesus that I can't bear. And this is, of course, where false teachers thrive in the church. Particularly when the church is facing fear of seasons and suffering and rejection. They come and they say, don't worry. We can turn Christ and the gospel into something that doesn't require us to run from our sin." That doesn't tell us we have to lay down our idols if we want to be a part of this kingdom. That the road to glory isn't a road through rejection and suffering. Jesus, the compassionate, welcoming Jesus, would never want you to do anything hard. Would never want you to give anything up. Would never say that you were wrong. The apostles combated those same lies just like we do today. Derek mentioned last week the many prosperity preachers. A very popular preacher named Andy Stanley, just preached a sermon in which he said that for many people, God's view of marriage is not sustainable. So they are forced by their own desire for love and companionship to do what they themselves acknowledge the Bible says is wrong. Stanley says that teaching otherwise, if you try and teach what Scripture says to these people they'll leave the church. He quite famously recently also said we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Again, because if you preach these parts of Christ, these parts of God, people won't come. Andy Stanley believes a gospel that includes self-denial and suffering and the loss of this world is too repugnant to be accepted. Too embarrassing. He loves the welcoming Jesus. The Jesus that offers rest, the Jesus that calls people to come to him. He hates the Jesus that preaches sin and repentance, the need to be born again and made new, the call to suffer. That's a very popular preacher. It's a very popular lie. What did Peter do when he saw the church threatened by lies like this? He told the church about what he saw up on that mountain. He reveals it to us, 2 Peter 1, 16 and 17. For we, that is the apostles, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Why, says Peter, should the church listen to the gospel? Why should we accept the apostles' teaching, all of it, the easy truths about Jesus, the hard truths about Jesus? Why should we not be pulled to somebody else's gospel, a gospel the apostles didn't preach, a gospel that's easier, that doesn't tell us to compromise, that doesn't tell us to battle sin? Why, says Peter? He says, look at Jesus. Don't look at the Jesus that you made, your little Frankenstein that you've composed to look as much like you as possible to say all the things that you wanted him to say, to not say any of the things that you would have found difficult or offensive. Look at the real Jesus and look at who he is. He is the Alpha and he is the Omega. He is the hope of God's people. He is the culmination of all of history. And yes, he has come to suffer and despised and be hated and rejected and die. And he did that. So that... If we follow him, we are welcomed into that radiant glory forever and ever and ever. Peter tells us, look beyond the shame and get a glimpse of the glory and realize the two are inseparable. That is the whole Christ. Peter himself had to learn that, didn't he? He had to learn that the cross comes before the crown that it is the necessary road to the crown, both for Christ and for Christians after him, so he and we can embrace the cross. We can even embrace suffering like Jesus did because we know the glory and the joy that that cross brings about, just like the author of Hebrews says, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us weigh aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. At the transfiguration, the apostles got to peer into the joy that was set before Christ. And then, as witnesses, they get to extend that to us and say, this is our joy as well. This is our hope so that we can follow Christ in the race. This is why we set aside every weight, why we set aside sin, even as it tries to cling to us. And don't forget that what they saw on that mountain was just a glimpse. They saw the face of Jesus shining, but John will one day say that in Jesus' eternal kingdom, there won't even be any night. They will need no light or lamp or even sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. One day the glimpses of the transfiguration are just going to explode all over creation in the kingdom of Christ. Put that before your eyes. When you are struggling with the idea that you might have to give up the treasures of this world that moth and rust can destroy and thieves break in and steal, Put this before your eyes when you are feeling tempted to sin and you try and tell yourself that God's word is unsustainable, that you might have to pick and choose. Put this before your eyes when you're trying to hide your guilt and your shame. Put your eyes on this glory when you are afraid of the consequences of holding to the gospel amidst your unbelieving family and friends. Put your eyes on Jesus, all of him. Beginning and the end, the point of the past and the future, Jesus was himself willing to set aside his place in glory and live a humble and poor life, hated and despised to die, to ensure that this kingdom would be established and that it is one that you are invited to share in. You can be there with Moses and Elijah and all those saints in history who trusted in God's salvation, gathered around Jesus in his glory, even sharing in that glory. So embrace Christ. Embrace all of him. Don't run from anything that he is and anything that he says. Listen to what he has said and know all of who he is. See him in his suffering so that you might see him in his future glory. John, after his witness to the transfiguration, exhorts us this way. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, when this glory appears over all creation, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That is your hope if you trust in Jesus. Take up your cross and follow him now. He who bore shame and wrath and punishment for you. Take up your cross, because after his cross came his crown, and you will exchange your cross someday for a crown as well. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. was the emblem of suffering and of shame. But we love that old cross, where the dearest and the best for a world of lost sinners was slain. To that old rugged cross we will ever be true. Its shame and reproach we will gladly bear. And then he'll call us someday to our home far away, where his glory forever we'll share. So we'll cherish the old rugged cross, till our trophies at last we lay down. We will cling to that old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Now before he went to that cross, Jesus gave us another wonderful object lesson, a visible sign, so that we could see what he had been teaching, less outwardly miraculous, but one that we are meant to be able to hold onto and repeat when we gather together, to sh- so that we can put our eyes upon the truth that we have heard in the gospel. The Lord's Supper is a gift to help us to cling to that hope and to persevere in the gospel, even in suffering and self-denial. Some of us who are sharing this supper will do so in pain and loss. Some of us are feeling the struggle against sin. Some of us might be experiencing the cost of holding on to the gospel right now as friends and family members reject it. That's why Christ gave it to us to take together, to remember, to hold on to together, to gather around his table in hope of the day when our faith becomes sight, when the things glimpsed at are everywhere. Now, if you are not yet a Christian, if you are not yet united with Christ's body by joining a gospel preaching church in membership, then don't take the supper with us. This is a reminder of the body of Christ broken for us to nourish us. It reminds us that through his death and resurrection, we are united to him as his body, and the church becomes the body of Christ. So if you are separated from Christ or from his body, the church, don't join at this table. Repent and believe in Christ. Trade your own glory, your own kingdom for this infinite glory of Jesus' kingdom that was yours, that could be offered to you when he took the punishment that you deserve and died and rose again. And then you will one day join with this body of believers, join with them in membership as a part of his family, a part of his body, and then you will join us at this table. But if your hope is in Christ and you are a member of a gospel preaching church, any gospel preaching church, not just ours, then let's receive this gift together. Let's take this visual sign to hold on to hope for the day when our faith becomes sight. I'd like to call the elders, worship team forward as we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this gift that Christ gave of allowing us to see the truths of the gospel. Father, our faith is not yet sight, but we have the testimony of those who have seen and told us where this is going. And Father, I pray that the future infinite glories of Christ that we have only glimpsed at, would be sufficient for us to hold on to suffering today. But more than that, that we would look at that cross where those glories were all one, and one even for the worst of sinners, so that every single one of us here, no matter what we have done or who we are, might have a place in his kingdom if we simply trust in Jesus. Father, I pray that we would hold on to that hope until he comes and our faith is made sight. pray in Jesus' name. Amen.